transition points are helpful in understanding and getting a feel for the flow of an epistle. What God has done for us slash what we can do for the Lord. It's very dramatic in Romans. It's very dramatic in Ephesians. Romans 11 ends with an amen and begins with a therefore. Between 11.36 and 12.1, Ephesians does the same thing between the last verse of chapter 3 and the first verse of chapter 4 with an amen. When those amens are there, it makes it very obvious, but it's obvious here to you as well if you'll notice the dearly beloved as he opens up the second part of this epistle. Having explained what wonderful things God has done for them and for us, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Amen and amen. Amen. Dearly beloved, they are beloved of God and they were beloved by Peter. I want you to remember that according to 1 John chapter 1, one of the reasons the apostles wrote unto us that we might have fellowship with God and with His Son Jesus Christ and with them. The apostles at the foundation of the church want us to have fellowship with them as well. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's a real family. When you're having fellowship, you say, but those men are dead. How can we have fellowship with them? Oh, you mean you forgot Hebrews 12? I haven't quoted it to you enough. That says, we are come unto the spirits of just men made perfect in heaven. We are part of the family of God. Most of them are in heaven. Some of them are still on earth. Dearly beloved, I beseech you. To beseech someone is to supplicate, entreat, or implore them. Simply put, it's to beg them. And Peter is begging these saints here by beseeching them that they would consider what he's about to say. Every means, every means ought to be used to move God's children from lethargy to faithful godliness. Paul besought in Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, I beseech you therefore based on the first 11 chapters of what I wrote in the epistle to the Romans that ye would give your bodies a living sacrifice and so forth in that place. As ambassadors of God, Paul said, we beseech you in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The reasons? Because there's judgment in the form of chastening that comes if we don't abstain from fleshly lusts. There's praise that we can give God directly. There's indirect praise that we can bring God by others seeing our changed lives. There's the enemies of the gospel that need to have their mouths shut. We should adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ by our good behavior. And there's practical benefits of assurance of eternal life and other things like fellowship with the Holy Ghost that come from righteous lives. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Now these Jews were truly strangers and pilgrims in a unique sense in that they were part of the diaspora or dispersion of the Jews by the Assyrians in uh, 650 B.C. However, that's not how Peter is addressing them here. Peter here is addressing them that they were strangers and pilgrims as Christians in an unchristian world. 
He's addressing them that way. He's already told them that they're in God's spiritual house and nation. The distance from earthly Jerusalem is pure vanity and would carry no weight and does not fill out those words as they are used elsewhere in Scripture. Rather than speak of national benefits that they were missing by not being in Israel, but rather being in Turkey, he was speaking of spiritual duties as he makes so plain in this 11th and 12th verse as to what he was talking about. When we look at Hebrews 11, and it's only a few pages away, we read there that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob understood this concept of being strangers and pilgrims. A stranger means that you're sort of an alien here on earth. You don't really belong here. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. This world and its worldly system is going to be burned up, and its inhabitants are going to be sent to hell. But we are here. But we're strangers here. We don't really belong. We don't fit in. We don't like them, and they don't like us. The righteous and the wicked have been constantly at war with each other. And the Bible tells us that from the beginning with Cain and Abel all the way to the end when the Lord Jesus Christ will appear and destroy our enemies. Hebrews 11.13 These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saw things that we enjoy, though they only saw them obscurely. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saw heaven. They weren't looking for things here in the world. Isn't it something that people today, 4,000 years later, want to put a perspective into Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they were really looking for the land of Canaan when the Bible tells us they weren't? They were looking for heaven. And they saw those things, they were persuaded of them, and they embraced them. I wish dispensationalists would embrace what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob embraced. Because it's what we embrace. That the real goal and objective is the holy land of heaven. Not any place on earth. Strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And so when we look at this verse, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, a pilgrim is someone who is just traveling on his way through. There's another word that we've had already in this epistle that matches up with strangers and pilgrims. It's a young lady's website in the church. What word am I referring to that talks about being a stranger and a pilgrim on earth? It's in chapter 1. It's in verse 17. Sojourning. Sojourning. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Because sojourning is only being here for a little while. Because we're passing through, we're strangers and pilgrims, and we should pass that time in fear. This world isn't your home. Heaven is your home. We're in the world, but we're not of it. Paul drew a great contrast. The Apostle Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, a great contrast between belly worshipers. And what is a belly worshiper to the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3? Someone who minds earthly things. And he goes on to say, but our conversation, meaning our lifestyle, our conduct, is in heaven. From whence we wait for the Savior, who shall change our vile body to be like His glorious body, even by the power by which He has subdued all things to Himself. Philippians 3, the last four verses are wonderful. Two verses about belly worshipers, two worshipers about the true followers of God. We're strangers and pilgrims here because we don't worship our bellies, nor do we mind earthly things. And that is something that we need to hear and heed from this warning. 
minding earthly things is in Philippians chapter 3. Remember two key facts. You are going to another world. This world will be burned up. The world you are going to is spectacular beyond description. It is so spectacular beyond description that it is not described in the Bible. Except a few brief mentions because you're not capable of comprehending it. What terminology could be used except to say that there is no more sorrow, there are no more tears, there is no more pain, there is no more death. Well, all things are new. The bondage of corruption is listed. That's, is lifted. That's where you're going. The new heaven and the new earth are drastically superior to this world. And let, brethren, this world, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, is going to be melted and burned up with fervent heat. So there's two things that we should remember at all times. While you're putting, while you're putting effort and money into your house, while you're putting effort and money into vehicles, while you're putting effort and time and and patience into jobs and careers and those things that we need to have, remember, they're all going to be burned up. Because this world is going to be burned up and there's another world that we're going to where you're going to have things that you can't buy with money. And you should believe the promises and embrace the promises like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts. An abstainer is someone who doesn't partake. An abstainer. If it's alcohol, they don't drink wine or strong drink or beer. They abstain from alcohol. A total abstainer is someone who abstains. But you know what the word means. Here it says, abstain from fleshly lusts. Lusts are desires. Your lusts of your flesh are what the sinful part of your being wants. And so you have to abstain from them to fulfill what Peter here is telling us. Lusts are desires. Fleshly lusts are men's sinful desires to have or do things that are sinful. Look at 1 John chapter 2. It's only a few pages to the right. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. These are great verses for men who are in the world but are not of the world. 1 John 2.15 Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. This is the word of the Lord to all of us. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot love both things when they are contradictory and mutually exclusive to each other. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. That's why you can't do both. And the world passeth away. I just told you two facts. This world is disappearing and you're going to be part of a new world. The world passeth away and the lust thereof. Oh Lord, bring that one soon. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Doing the will of God is going to be opposite of the world. Doing the will of God is going to be abstaining from your lusts and what they want. If it is something you want, are you with me on this point? If it is something you want, if it is something that you count pleasant and pleasurable, that means it's going to be painful to give it up. And I will never play games with you about the Word of God because the Bible says it just that way. 
It's giving up the pleasures of sin for a season. It's giving up the riches of Egypt for the reproach of Christ. Both of them are vain, foolish, vexing, dysfunctional, and would destroy you from the inside out. But they're pleasant for a while. Sin is pleasant to the flesh. It's obnoxiously hateful to God. And He despises it. And to our new man, we hate it and despise it. And we must make that choice in order to fulfill 1 Peter 2.11 Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts. And it listed three kinds. And it's the kinds the devil has always used. The devil used these three temptations on Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he used these three temptations on the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness. The lust of the flesh. Here's a few examples just to see if maybe you have fallen for the lust of the flesh. Slothfulness. Do you know why you're lazy? Because your flesh is lazy. It doesn't want to work hard. Gluttony. Overeating. Drunkenness. Overdrinking. Fornication. Sex outside of marriage. Oversleeping. Because you love the bed. When the Bible tells you to get out of bed, those are lusts of the flesh. It's things your body wants to do, and there's many more. Things your body wants to do, what your fleshly body wants to do, but it's a part of the lust of the flesh because it's a sinful part of you. And you've got to abstain from those things. You gotta get up on time. You gotta eat for strength, drink for the, drink for the purpose God gave it, and maximize sex in your marriage. And work hard when you're on the job. And you can be doing the will of God while the rest of the world does the lust of their flesh. The lust of the eyes. Covetousness. When you look at something and you want it and it causes you to be discontent or it causes you to think of some way to get it, That's not lawful. Lust of the eyes. Mental adultery. You look on a woman to lust after her. Fantasies. Women reading romance novels and thinking about how wonderful to be married to some guy like that. Well, there is no guy like that, ladies. Are you ladies going to say to me, well, then the men should be told that there are no models that look like the ones at the picture. That's right. That's right. The men are told that. I tell them both. I hit them both up. No mental adultery, no sexual fantasies. Those are the lust of the eyes. Overspending. You see something, you gotta have it. So you overspend, and you're not financially prudent and temperate with your money. You end up being discontent. That's a sin of the lust of the eyes, because you see your neighbor driving a car, you see your neighbor living in a house, or you see a set of clothes, or you see furniture someplace, and you think you've gotta have it. Now listen, if you see something like that and you admire it, that's one thing. But to desire it and to let it make you discontent or to cause you to break any other commandment of God, it is sin. For you to spend money on something you want that where that money ought to be used for savings or that money ought to be used for the Lord or that money ought to be used for living more prudently, you have sinned by buying something you want. I told you that lusts were something you want. Of course you're going to like that thing when you get it. But hate it. Abstain from fleshly lust. The pride of life. Where does the pride of life come in? Bitterness. Why are you bitter? Because you're proud. Someone else has hurt you. You're not going to let them get away with it, even if you're the only one that has the bile in your heart. Boasting is the pride of life. Envy. Resenting others for their advantages. Hatred. Malice. Revenge. Slander. Whisper. All those things are the pride of life. Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war 
Oh, brethren, there's so much that could be said. I've got to share with you, Moses. I've quoted it twice today. This is now the third time you have to hear it. Hebrews 11 and verse 24. Look what the Bible says about Moses and the choice he made to abstain from fleshly lusts and to choose the religion of Jehovah. Hebrews 11.24, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, how old was he? Forty. Forty. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather. It's a choice. Everyone makes a choice to abstain from fleshly lusts. A choice to do the will of God. He He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He chose affliction. He chose suffering. He chose to suffer affliction. You lose friends. You lose status in the world. You lose some income. You lose prestige to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. I can promise you that you're going to lose those kind of things to follow Christ. God's people are the base, poor, foolish people of this world. And you're going to be among them. You're going to call them brothers and sisters. You're going to spend a lot of time with them. And so the choice is to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And let me tell you something. Moses knew what the pleasures of sin for a season were by being a 40-year-old man having lived in Egypt. He goes on to say, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. He knew what he could have if he hung around and lived out his life in Egypt. The pleasures and treasures. For he had respect under the recompense of the reward. What was his respect? What I've already explained to you. There's two key facts to remember. This world's going to be burned up and you're going to another world. He had respect under the recompense of the reward. He knew that the payday was worth the choice. So at the age of 40, in the prime of his life, do you know what the Bible says in Acts chapter 7 about Moses? He was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was great in word and deed. He flushed it all. Forty years on the backside of the desert, then forty years babying the most stiff-necked, stubborn, unthankful, ungrateful, complaining, whining, murmuring people the Lord's ever put together in a church. What a life. Eighty years of suffering. What would Moses say if he were here right now? He's already said it. He would choose affliction of Christ and the reproach of Christ and the affliction of suffering with his people than the treasures and pleasures of Egypt for a season. Oh, let's be like him. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. You're in a war. Anyone that goes to war without preparation will be killed and lose everything. You're in a war. It says war, which war against the soul. You're in a war for your soul. Do not underestimate the conflict or the consequences of this conflict. You don't prepare, you die. We were once on our way to hell with those who are still on their way to hell. But God saved us and quickened us by His grace. And now we know that we're in a war. We don't want to live that way anymore. We won't live that way anymore. And it's a choice we make every day. There are things that well up inside of you. You see things and you want them. You feel things in your body. You feel pretty good about yourself, so you get a little overconfident, which is pride in the Bible. Three different ways. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
You put them down. You don't do them. You don't say what you're thinking. You don't think what you're thinking. You gird up the loins of your mind. You don't even let those thoughts start in your head. You don't let them start in your heart. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The old man has to be put off. He's going to try to get on every morning. As soon as you're awake, the old man's going to be trying to dictate how you live this day, what you're thinking about, how critical you are of your wife. Everything, every aspect is going to come flying up with the old man and you're to put him off and put the new man on, which is abstaining from lust because they're warring against your soul. There is an enemy that wants to destroy you. Forget the devil and forget the world. There is an enemy that wants to destroy you. It is the lust of your flesh. It is you. You want to destroy you. There's two parts to you. There's the new man and the old man. The old man wants to destroy you. He throws up things to your thoughts minute by minute. You see things. Lust of the eyes. You feel things. Lust of the flesh. You feel things inside in your spirit. Or as psychologists would say, maybe your ego. It's the pride of life. And you've got to crush those things because it will destroy you. What is the war? It is the Romans 7 conflict that Paul described between his mind and his flesh. What is the war? It is the craving desires inside you to do things opposite the will of God. God has a will for how you and I should live, and the lust of the flesh are those desires inside us that convince us they're very pleasant. Convince us it's the better way to live. Convince I have to do this. Convince us if I don't stand up for myself, no one else will. Convince us I can have that little thought because it doesn't do my wife any harm that I'm looking at another woman and lusting after her in my heart. These are the lusts of the flesh, and they take us down. God is our Father. He has told us how He wants to live. It is it is no different in principle than from a father telling his child how that father wants them to live. God has told us, and when we don't do what our Father wants us to do, we violate the relationship between the two of us. The fellowship is broken, and we are no longer the obedient children that this particular epistle is teaching us to be because 114 says, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Peter is just giving us a general rule right now of abstaining from fleshly lusts in general, he is going to go after authority immediately. The authority of government over citizens, the authority of masters over employees, and the authority of husbands over wives. Right here in order. Verse 13 is going to be civil government. Verse 18 is going to be employment. And verse 1 of chapter 3 is going to be wives. He's going to go right after authority when he gets specific. Right now he's being general about these lusts. I've given you three. They're from 1 John 2, 15 and 17. And every sin in your life can be put into one of those three categories because there's really nothing outside those three categories. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. You need to hate those things. We need to help each other hate them. We need to take a stand. We need to make a mental stand first. A commitment to Christ. That we're going to obey Him and hate those things. We're going to shut down opportunities for our eyes to sin. We're going to make no no provision for the flesh to sin. And we're going to get rid of pride by loving others and humbling ourselves and condescending to men of low estate and wanting to serve others instead of ourselves. And we come to verse 12. Lord, have mercy upon us and teach us. Verse 11. 
having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. These were Jews. I hope that's evident from verse 12 of chapter 2. Conversation is a, a word for lifestyle or the conduct of how you live. It doesn't mean talking. It means talking now. But in 1611, when the King James Bible was written, and one of its primary definitions yet is conversation means your lifestyle and manner of living. Having your lifestyle honest. Honest doesn't mean just telling the truth. Honest is such a bigger word than that. And honest means more than that, especially in its earlier definitions. To be honest is to be honorable. See, it doesn't mean to be truthful. Truthful is just part of being honorable. To be honest means to be honorable in motive and in principles marked by uprightness of good moral character, virtuous, upright, well-disposed. That would be noble and virtuous, upright and righteous is what the word honest means. So it says, having your lifestyle among the Gentiles, honorable, upright, virtuous, noble, godly, righteous. That is what the words mean here. Having your conversation on... Let me prove it to you from the verse. In the verse, what is set in opposition to an honest conversation? Doing evil. So it's being good. What is set in agreement with an honest conversation? Good works. Good enough? See, it's not a verse about telling the truth all the time. Telling the truth is one little tiny part of being honorable. It's bigger than that. It's broader than that. We want to be honorable, noble, and virtuous, and upright in the way that we live before the world. That, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, let them accuse us of whatever they want to accuse us of, but let's shut their mouths that they have no grounds on which to say that we are evildoers. That, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may buy your good works. We want to show them good works to shut their mouths. Brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, but what did they say about Him? He operated by the power of Beelzebub. He was a glutton and a drunkard, a wine-bibber. No matter how perfectly you live, there's going to be evildoers, but we never want to give them any grounds for accusations against us. When Jesus was on trial for His life, could they bring anything to bear of sin in His life? None. That's the way we want it to be for us. Lord, help us to that end. That they may buy your good works. We are to be known for good works. Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15, he would put it this way, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. We want to shine as lights. We want to be like salt. We want to be a preservative. We want to put flavor. We want to shed the light of God and the marvelous light that He's called us into by the virtuous, noble, godly, righteous character that we show. We want to be liberal. We want to be holy. We want to be honest. We want to be truthful. We want to be gracious. We want to be forgiving. We want to be merciful. And we want those things to exude from us by good works. And we want them to be seen because they will be seen. We are the light of the world. Therefore, when we go out in public, we don't need to hang our heads. We don't need to sneak around. We should be open and bold and confident in the grace of Christ 
and in the truth of His religion and in how we ought to live. That does not mean that we forget prudence and we do things that are that is no longer acceptable in our particular society in public. We do them at home. But all those things that we can say and do, the list that I just went through, being merciful, being forgiving, being gracious, being liberal, being kind, being helpful, all those things we can do in public and there is no law against them. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. Against such there, temperance there is, against such there is no law. Those things ought to flow out of us. Those are our good works and we want men to see them. We don't light a candle, which is our profession of the Lord Jesus Christ, and put it under a bushel. We live it. That they may see your good works. Look at the first two verses of chapter 3. Is this wife supposed to keep her Christianity in a closet? Look what it says, 1 Peter 3, Likewise ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation. See, same word from back here in 2.12, her manner of life, her lifestyle, her conduct, while they behold. Do you see that word behold? While they behold. While they behold. That they may by your good works which they shall behold. We want them to see our good works. Somebody will say to me, but what about in Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 3 when it says we're not supposed to give eye service as men pleasers? Well, wait a minute. That is doing things out of a completely wrong motive. That is working on the job just to be seen by men to get a promotion as a man pleaser. The Lord is, that, that passage doesn't contradict this passage. This passage here is talking about the higher motive of wanting to please God and have Him glorified by your life, not getting ahead on the job by being a man pleaser and just doing things to please men's eyes. We want to please the eyes of our Father in heaven, which if we do it well is going to please the eyes of those that we work for. There is a great difference between the two of them. One, the motive reaches no higher than man. The other reaches all the way to the glory of God directly and indirectly. Which brings me to the next point. They may buy your good works, which they shall behold. They'll see your good works if you're living the life of a Christian. Glorify God in the day of visitation. Jesus said the same thing. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5 and verse 16. That they may glorify God in the day of visitation. What is the day of visitation? First of all, God's glory is wonderful. You were created for God's glory. Before I get to the day of visitation, you were created for God's glory. There are two ways that we can give God glory easily. One, by keeping His commandments, we bring Him glory. We can praise Him with our lips. We can use the glory hanging in our mouth to give Him glory. We can show forth the praises of Him. Show forth. That was a wonderful expression as well back there in verse 9 that we didn't get to explanify. But to show forth... The praises of Him is to declare and live in such a way that it's visible to the sight. Because it says, show. It doesn't say, tell forth. It says, show forth. Do you remember when Job said to God, I have heard you by the hearing of my ear, but now mine eye seeth thee? Did Job see God? No. 
Job heard God, but Job heard God with clearer understanding so that it was as if he saw him. And we should show forth the praises of God in our lives. But there is an indirect way that we glorify God, and that is by living in such a way that those who see us glorify God. That person is a Christian. I can't believe they did that. The ordinary person does not do that. Anybody see or hear the testimony of the wife of the man killed on flight 93 into Pennsylvania when he said, let's roll? Do you know who I'm speaking of? Do do, do more than two or three? You know, in the days following the, the Twin Towers coming down, I remember seeing her just a few days later with a couple of children and a baby in her belly being interviewed. Wow. Wow! Give God the glory! All... Hey. Give God the glory. She ascribed it all to the sovereignty of God and put her total trust in Him. It was wonderful. Remember recently I shared with you about a widow out of a church in Texas whose husband was jogging in Libya and and a drive-by shooting just gunned him down in the streets and she pulled an ad out in the paper in Libya forgiving those that had killed her husband? You know, could you do that, self? You know, I'm doing that just to get all of your attention. Let our good works before men that that they may glorify our Father in the day of visitation. You're the only Bible that many people are ever going to see, ever going to read. You're the Bible. When you go to work tomorrow, you're the Bible. The only one they're ever going to see or read. What kind of a Bible are they getting? How clear is it? How powerful is it? How weighty is it? What is the day of visitation? It is when God regenerates or convicts a man to consider truth. The Bible uses God visiting men to describe His personal spiritual blessing and opportunity that accompanies salvation. It's in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, I'll read you a couple of references. The day of visitation when God comes to a man and reveals the truth to him, regenerates him, and opens his eyes to see and his ears to hear, and all of a sudden your good works come together with what God's showing him, and it makes for a powerful combination. Luke one sixty eight. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He hath visited and redeemed His people. Verse 78, Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. Luke chapter 7 and verse 16. Luke 7 and verse 16. And when there came a fear, and there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. Jesus said that Jerusalem would be laid level with the ground because they knew not the day of their visitation. Acts chapter 15 and verse 14, the apostles of the great council of Jerusalem, Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for His name. Who is that Gentile family? The household of Cornelius. It's called the visitation of God. When we live in such a way, we cause people to see a changed life based on Christianity, based on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then God visits that person inside by regenerating them, by visiting Him, by opening his heart to attend unto the things of Scripture. And so all of a sudden, this internal testimony is matching up with what they've seen outside, and they glorify God in the day of visitation. Sometimes, look at the Lord Jesus Christ, not all the Jews glorified God because He was there in Israel. 
but everyone that God had opened their eyes and hearts when they met the Lord Jesus Christ and saw His good deeds, the two came together powerfully for their benefit. What happens in First uh, Peter 3, 1 and 2 when it says, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, when a wife submits to her husband and is obedient, an unbelieving husband, a pagan husband, this man is worshiping Diana of the Ephesians. But when this wife obeys him, submits to him, and lives a chaste life, totally loyal to him, contrary to the rest of the nation around, when she is a great wife, and, and he beholds her chaste conversation, what is the effect of glorifying God? What is, what is comparable to glorifying God in the day of visitation? What does it say in verse 1? It says that she can be one, he can be one without the word, right. without her ever preaching, without her ever preaching, her husband can be won from the worship of Diana to the worship of the God of the Bible and His Son, Jesus Christ. Because that's what your good works being beheld by men and they glorify God in the day of visitation. And all these women in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter 3, they were waiting for that day of visitation. But I'll tell you what they were doing in the meantime today. And tomorrow and the next day, they were going to be the best wives in their cities, in their provinces. And they were going to wait in the Lord for the day of visitation. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. My brethren, having conversation, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's abstain from lusts that war against our souls and will destroy you. Your lusts will destroy you no matter how pleasant you think they are or will be. In the end, they will destroy you. And let's let our good works shine. Let's be lights in this world that other men may see and God gets indirect glory by our conduct that they behold, especially in the day of visitation when God visits them and they're able to see that they have had a living example of a Christian in front of them their whole lives, but now they have it on the, the witness on the inside, they have the witness on the outside, they glorify God for His religion. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.